Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In today's episode, we're going to listen in on a panel discussion that took place at the end of last year, hosted by the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. The Institute's research director, Katie Glenn Bass, hosted a conversation based on themes from scholar David G. Robinson's first book, Voices in the Code. The book contains the story of how a group of patients, doctors, data scientists, and advocates work together to develop a new way to match kidney donations for transplants with the goal of making the process fair and open. The book bears insights on how algorithmic systems that are often heavily freighted with moral and political complexity can and should be developed with care to avoid excluding the voices of non-technical stakeholders in the outcome. And it's a guide for policymakers concerned with questions around transparency, safety, and equity in such systems. You'll hear a few references to slides and visuals in the discussion. Visit Tech Policy Press for a link to the video of the event if you're keen to see more. Here's Katie to introduce David and the rest of her panel. Welcome, everybody. I am Katie Glenn Bass. I am the Research Director at the Knight First Amendment Institute. Thank you all so much for joining us for this. I want to welcome the really stellar group of speakers that we have with us today. David Robinson is a visiting scholar at the Social Science Matrix at the University of California at Berkeley and a member of the faculty at Apple University. Nathan Matias is a professor at Cornell and a visiting scholar at the Knight Institute this year. We're very lucky to have him. And Deb Raji is a fellow at the Mozilla Foundation and a PhD candidate at Berkeley. Finally, Arvind Narayan was supposed to join us today, but unfortunately, he is tending to a sick child at home, so he's going to have to miss it. We're sorry that he can't be with us, but he did send around some very insightful comments in advance that I will draw from as we talk. And we are all here to discuss David's wonderful book, Voices in the Code, which details how one community built a life-or-death algorithm in an inclusive and accountable way. It is really an outstanding book, and I would encourage you all to buy and read it. Um, and with that, David, can you please introduce us to your book? Absolutely. Thank you, Katie, and thanks, everyone. So what I'm going to do in approximately the next 15 minutes or so is just to set the stage for a conversation about the book, which is not exactly the same as trying to summarize the entire book. But uh, I, I just want to start with some motivation, because I suspect a lot of our discussion may be about how the problem that's the central story in the book, namely the allocation of transplantable kidneys in the United States, relates to other problems that we care about that have a similar form, where automated decision-making by software is doing something that is of civic import and where it would be ideal to do it in a way that is inclusive and, and accountable. I, in past years, have worked on civil rights issues where that hasn't been happening. And like Deb, like Nathan, I'm part of a scholarly community and a scholarly discussion about how that goal in general might be achieved better, whether we're talking about courtroom or a hospital or a social services office, but all these places where people's lives are really shaped by these automated decisions and where we've seen a series of conspicuous examples of things gone badly wrong. 
this case, this case of transplant allocation is one in which relative to many of those other cases, there's relatively more inclusion, relatively more accountability is the argument that I make in the book. And so even though it's a process that's far from perfect and an outcome uh, that is in many ways far from perfect, it's something where we can learn a great deal. So to get us oriented, I want to start the story here at this airport Marriott in Dallas, Texas, on a chilly morning in February of 2007. There's an all-day meeting happening inside of hundreds of people involved in the transplant of kidneys in the United States. You've got surgeons, nurses, social workers, data scientists, uh, but also and I should say, transplant recipients and living donors of kidneys are in this room. And they're changing the system that across the United States, where there are 100,000 people waiting to receive a transplanted kidney, allocates each newly available organ. And the proposal that's on the table is to use something that they are calling LIFT. This was in the era before ride-sharing, life years from transplant. And the idea is to maximize how much, how many additional years of life are lived from this overall pool of organs. This mostly is about, I should clarify, the list, the allocation. We're talking here about people who are organ donors and didn't pick out a recipient. And so the question is, the system in some way needs to identify who's going to receive the organ um, because the donor did not. So this isn't donations to loved ones. It's there's a resource that's regarded legally and, and ethically as a, as a gift. Uh, so it's not a market commodity, uh, but there's not enough of it to go around. So we have to do something. And anyway, it's often called a waiting list, but I should say it's in fact a matching process that involves a complex blend of medical, moral, and logistical factors, who's nearby, who's ready, who has the right blood type, but also to what extent do we give everyone an equal chance versus maximizing total benefit. And here you see the areas here are the likely amount of, uh, of, of life that is gained if the organ is given to a, a younger or an older recipient. And what you can see is that the integral, the, the space between how long people would survive on dialysis, which is the non-transplant alternative, and how long they'd survive if transplanted is basically greater for younger people. And they made a very vivid illustration that if this life year maximization plan were to be implemented, this, by the way, is the scientific registry of transplant recipients. You see the, the medallion in the lower left. This is an outside auditing group that doesn't run the system, but just analyzes it. And they made it very clear that maximizing benefit would mean dramatically reducing the number of older people who would be able to get transplants among those who, who need a transplant. Uh, but I want to take us forward in time, and this is the lunchtime speaker, Clive Graw. He's a 54-year-old traffic engineer from Los Angeles who suffers from a rare genetic disease called polycystic kidney disease, which causes the kidneys to break down over time. And what he argues is that he's taken good care of himself for decades. He's a marathon runner. He... Um, you know, has been closely followed by, by doctors. And this plan, which is being implemented as he reaches the older part of his life, threatens to essentially punish him for not having needed an organ earlier in his life, when as a younger candidate under the newly proposed system, he would have a much better chance. Uh, so he says, look, this age thing, this idea of halting 
not halting, but greatly reducing transplants to older uh, recipients. It's unfair and you shouldn't do it. He pushes back. And by the way, at the time he gives this speech, he himself is in kidney failure, just above the need for dialysis in his level of kidney function. So what happened to the plan? What happened to him? We'll come back to in a moment. But the big question over a decade of debate between about 2004 and 2014 was this balance between, uh, if you like, the apple of here, it's the apple of equity, meaning uh, giving everyone the same chance and the orange of utility, meaning maximizing benefit. There uh, are other, a lot of other things about the maximization of benefit that were that were controversial in addition to the the elder piece. Uh, it also would have really rewarded people for being healthier in the first place when they came to need a kidney, since they're going to be more efficient converters of kidneys into life years saved. So that meant that by and large, the recipients would be wealthier, whiter, younger, uh, more closely followed, have fewer comorbidities like diabetes or obesity or other things that might uh, complicate a person's health in addition to kidney function. So anyway, this is the this is the argument. Do we maximize benefit or give equal chances or on a spectrum? How close do we come to doing either of those things? And here's that graph that I mentioned in Dallas. What you can see that they very clearly laid out for people is that the age distribution of who would receive an organ would change. So the pink is the current, that is to say, the pre-existing rules at the time of this Dallas meeting. Uh, and the teal is the new idea. And what you can see is for people in their 20s, the new rules would have more than tripled the share of organs going to them from 7% of all organs to 23. Whereas for people in their 50s, like Clive, the uh, fraction of organs going to them would decline by roughly half. And part of what's illustrated here is not only the impact of this uh, particular plan, but it's also the broader idea that it's important to forecast what the consequences are going to be of a proposed change in a high stakes algorithm, and that it's possible through things like graphs and visuals uh, and plain language explanations to create a world in which people can understand what's really at stake. So the Lyft proposal was, was the main idea that was under debate for about the first half of this period that's studied in the book, 2004 to 2009. And then they moved after that because it was rejected, uh, partly on the strength of objections like Clive's in Dallas, uh, but also many other patients and advocates and others said this wouldn't be fair. And so there was a switch to a second idea which was that we could preserve everyone's chance of getting an organ roughly at the same level that it had been before, but re essentially remap which organs go to which recipients and give the youngest and healthiest organs to the youngest and healthiest recipients, thus recapturing many of the overall welfare gains without uh, leaving anyone further out into the cold than they had been before. For reasons that are too complicated to get into here, uh, this was seen as violative of the Age Discrimination Act, and there was a third proposal, which basically ended up as a messy compromise between the two sides. So on the one hand, it didn't profoundly uh, alter the overall likelihood of getting an organ by age, but it did increase uh, total benefit and did increase the, the extent to which the system was oriented toward maximization of benefit as opposed to giving everyone uh, an equal chance. 
after the system was implemented, we saw a lot of analysis and uh, tracking of what was going on. One of the huge problems in the transplant system is the extent to which non-white candidates and particularly black candidates uh, in the United States, where the the, ba- the baseline level of kidney failure is between three and four times the rate in the white community, are, are disfavored in allocation. One of the one of the problems in the old system, or one of the unfair things about it, was that you would get priority on the waiting list from the date when your doctor first added you to the list. So if you had superior access to care and were being uh, seen in, earlier in the course of your disease, you'd have a higher priority because you would get on the list earlier. And what they did was they said, instead of doing priority from the date that your doctor adds you to the list. You do have to be sick in order to get on the list, but still what was happening was many people who had were more closely followed, uh, which is a by and large white uh, group, relatively speaking, were, uh, were being added to the list earlier. So this the, the change was as soon as you need dialysis, you get that date as your priority date for waiting time for transplant, even if you don't, in fact, join the transplant list until later. So the, the result of this was that it essentially made the calculation of waiting time more equitable. And what you see here is for people who are waitlisted, different races, what's the rate at which they're getting transplanted? And what you can see is that after the 2014 rules change, there's a convergence depicted, which uh, implies that at least in this period, uh, there was a reduction in overall inequity by by race, there there were many other changes that we could also uh, talk about. Uh, but I I want to just give a flavor for the way this process worked, such as I can in the in the few minutes that I'm I'm sketching this out. But of course, I didn't uh, study this out of a pre-existing interest in clinical medicine, but rather because I hoped that it could inform us about how to do public debate and policymaking about high stakes automated decision making better in the future for other domains, right? So my pitch to you as attendees at this event is there's stuff you can learn that you can, as it were, transplant out of medicine into criminal legal system reform, into welfare, into perhaps hiring other kinds of high stakes systems. So at this point, you're probably wondering what I think those lessons are that are portable. Um, and I'm going to quickly go through six of them just at a high level, and, and then I'll uh, get us rolling on the on the discussion here. I'm e- as eager for that as anyone else present. So the first is algorithms shift our moral attention. What do I mean by this? So the balance between maximizing total benefit and giving everyone an equal chance was something that was easily altered through a change in the parameters of this algorithm that allocates organs, and it became a huge focus. But around any, as a as a STS scholar, science and technology studies would any, any anyone would, would 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 tell you around any technical system, there are social surroundings that mediate how that system actually impacts the world. That's very true here. And one of the questions, there here are a couple of uh, things that were not on stage, but were vitally important. Number one, there are arbitrary geographic zones within which in this time period, people's organs are are being allocated. So if you live in one state versus another, there could be a many fold difference in how likely you are given the same clinical clinical presentation to receive an organ. 
Uh, and But the, those zones, the idea of changing them was not on the table. And in fact, if you go back as I did and look at the debates and the, and the documents, which are voluminous, uh, they scarcely mention geography, even though that's a major driver of inequity. Uh, another one is this whole conversation is about how who gets from the waiting list to the operating room to get a transplant. And that is very important to do in an equitable way. But a question that is not addressed in that is who's on the transplant list in the first place and how do people get there and how many of the people and which of the people who are clinically suitable for transplant are even listed. And there are a whole bunch of factors. There are social barriers that if someone is likely to have trouble accessing care after they get a transplant, then the transplant center may not want them on the list because if transplanted, they would be more likely or would be perceived perhaps inaccurately as being more likely to uh, to fail uh, to, to maintain that transplant and have a bad outcome that would uh, hurt the center. Anyway, there's a lot going on that's not on stage is the point here. Second, briefly, participation creates opinions, meaning that uh, I thought of public input when I began this project as a raw material that one would go out and gather, like the way you might mine uh, coal or something and use it to create this process where everyone's views would be measured. Maybe it's a measurement problem would be another way to characterize the earlier way that I was thinking about this. And in fact, what happened here was much more human and more interesting. People gradually influenced one another's beliefs about what would be fair or would at least be an incremental improvement. And the uh, the process not only reconciled, but changed people's positions about what the right thing to do would be. <laughs> Thirdly, shared understanding needs shared infrastructure. What do I mean? If we don't want to live in a world in which technical experts make the moral choices for us, then we need there to be a way for people whose expertise or whose perspective comes from somewhere else besides being a technical expert. We need th there to be a way for those folks to participate. And even if there is perfect transparency, and this comes to a, an issue that I, I know is of interest at the Knight Foundation, as it is in many other places, what does it mean to meaningfully have an informed debate? And people sometimes say, and I, I, lest I be perceived as casting stones, I myself earlier in my career argued thus, that if only the underlying data from policymaking processes were more public, that then there would be more participation, there would be a more inclusive process, and we would get to wiser and more legitimate answers. But in fact, this process worked to the extent it did because there were people out there making plain language summaries. There were people out there making graphs. There were annual audit reports that had detailed descriptions that were easily understood of how the system was working. And by the way, there, there still are. And that actually was done by a separate body, as I mentioned earlier, not the people running the software. My point here more generally is it takes resources to do those things. And we should be clear-eyed about, and we should expect when it's important enough that we really want participation, we should expect to invest to make that possible. Fourth, deliberation is costly and it's and it's and its details matter. What I what I mean here is that when you take an empty chair and point to it and say anyone can come in or impacted people can come in and sit at the table and weigh in on this in a way that is opening up 
a possibility. And in a way, in the best or idealized case, it's a kind of sharing power. But at the same time, it also imposes a burden on people to show up whenever the meeting is, wherever it is, and to devote their time to thinking through the issue. And particularly if input that is sought comes from people who are in some way marginalized or resource constrained, it becomes often hard for them to uh, participate in this civics fable because, well, for whatever reason that we're concerned about their well-being to begin with, uh, they don't have resources necessarily to fully participate. And so, and in some other examples that I talk about in the book, like participatory budgeting in Brazil, for instance, there's been, there've been positive experiences with investing in things like childcare during evening meetings or food, if it's at the dinner hour, you know, so that people can come in and, and, and participate in a way that works for them. And this is something I would say the transplant world did not illustrate a particularly great way of doing. Fifth, quantification can be uh, a moral anesthetic. What I mean by that is it takes messy and deep human realities and sort of abstracts them away. And we end up in a world where we're saying, Alice gets the organ, Bob does not, because Alice has more allocation points. And it seems like a math problem, instead of seeming like a cruel choice in which inevitably someone's not getting an organ. And this, this, by the way, arises not only in kidneys, where the base where the alternative is to be kept alive by dialysis, but also in hearts and lungs, where the alternative often is to is to simply die and you can't save people. And and I think that can be a bad thing to abstract away that humanity, but it also may have a constructive role to play in some instances. I mean, anesthesia of the regular kind is also something that, while prone to abuse, we're generally glad we have access to. And as I uh once heard in a discussion around compassion, you don't necessarily want a surgeon who feels your pain. You want a surgeon who's completely focused on a successful surgery. And so I think this this question of when and where do we open our hearts and get into the human suffering? And, and how do we reconcile ourselves to the fact that there's far more such suffering than, than any one person can fully resonate to in any one moment. Um, Quantification is, descriptively speaking, part of how we navigate that impossible situation. And I think there's a lot to be explored about how to use that and when. And lastly, knowledge and participation don't always mean power. In the case that I studied, we had a great participatory process that resolved some important moral questions, but other key questions were later resolved by a court acting in just a few days. So whatever new institutions or practices are created, we should bear in mind that they're subsidiary to the existing infrastructure of governance and power. And with that, I'll uh, I'll conclude. Thank you, David. All right, I, I I want this to be as much a conversation between you, the the experts who have thought about this far more than I have, but I will guide us along. Um, this book, you know, it's it's so wonderfully written and. It's about this kidney allocation process, but it's also it's about everything that has to do with sort of algorithms and governance and and human problems um, inside of computer problems. So I, I'm going to start with your point number five, and then I also want to save some time to talk about this participation question and participation versus power. But to to begin with the point you made about quantification as a moral anesthetic. 
this is an observation that I think a few of the panelists also made. Um, Arvind noted that he you know this comes up over and over again in algorithmic decision making, this attempt to take the politics out of policy making, which he thinks is the source of much of the appeal of machine learning. Um, and Deb, I know you've written and thought a lot about similar issues. So I'm wondering if you could expand a bit on that point and then maybe David and Nathan can respond. Thank you so much, first of all, David, for that great overview of um, the sort of main themes in your book and the main conclusions. I appreciated that. Yeah, I think um, one distinction that I reflect on, I know we're talking with the Knight Foundation and you guys have done a lot of work on online platforms and online platform governance. And I think one of the distinctions in this realm of automated decision systems, um, so systems that are sort of typically used by institutions to make decisions on behalf of this sort of separate impacted population is that there's a, another layer of challenges involved with these kind of automated systems where um, the, the users of these systems. So if you think of, you know, um, you know, uh, hospital workers and clinicians or doctors or hiring managers, they, they will make use of these systems to make decisions about uh, sort of separate impacted population. So that's the students, the patients. And so as a result, um, uh, these, algorithms can become leveraged by institutions and individuals who actually have the decision-making power to make decisions about those that might not even have any visibility into the fact that, you know, the reason that they were denied rent was because their landlord made use of an algorithm, or the reason that they didn't get this job was because the hiring manager made use of an algorithm. Um, and there's been a lot of great work that's been written on it. I know Arvind's been starting to talk a lot about this. Uh, Virginia Eubanks has sort of done a lot of work discussing this. Uh, ben Green has discussed this use in the public sector very heavily. And now uh, David's book really kind of explores this theme very thoroughly as well. Uh, the idea of people leveraging these systems in order to effectively set new norms for how their decision-making is going to go. Um, and there's so many ethical dimensions and moral dimensions to these decisions. Um, I think David's book does a really good job highlighting just how high the stakes can be, like literally life and death. Um, uh, and Typically with these decisions, you know, when you have human decision makers involved, uh, they're accountable in some traceable way uh, for the decisions that they make in the sense of, you know, if an individual makes a poor decision or a group of individuals, you know, follows a policy that's poorly constructed, then we can point to that and we can hold an individual accountable, at least legally. Um, but with the algorithm... Um, a lot of this is just delegated to equations. And although the decisions are still being made and there's definitely responsibility on those that construct these algorithms, you know, they're making decisions about the data, they're making decisions about how exactly to implement these algorithms, who they're going to deploy these systems on. Uh, they're making a lot of decisions as they build these systems, but it's so much easier to point to the algorithm, which is sort of this disembodied decision maker, um, then take responsibility when that algorithm is involved in the process. And so you can see that with this case in the kidney allocation uh, scenario, but uh, so many others as well of just uh, opting to leverage the use of an algorithm as a way to sort of absolve decision makers of responsibility in really critical situations. Um, that keeps coming up as a theme in so many scenarios. Um, and yeah, it was sort of beautifully highlighted in this book. Nathan, David, anything you want to add to that? Maybe I'll just briefly say that one of the pieces that I think Deb mentioned a moment ago that I think really rings in my ears in particular is this question about the relationship between this technology and what the norms are among humans, you know, who surround it and are involved in, in creating it. And I think one of the most interesting things about this story for me was the way in which the participants illustrated 
norms that are different from what often happens where uh, technical people sort of end up just deciding was is a picture I think that we often have in these situations. And in this case, the data scientists uh, in at least some important instances took pains to say, okay, this seemingly technical decision is actually a moral choice that belongs to a wider circle. And I, I, I think that's, you know, part of what I would hope to see more of elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I would, I would add something to this. I, first, I want to thank David for diving into some of the details in this talk. If you haven't read the book, it's also a gripping story, right? It's a story about the people who were fighting for their lives, about scientists who were trying to find ways to discover breakthroughs and sometimes flying across the country just to like carry some chemicals in a bag so they could try some new medical treatment that might, you know, make a huge difference in some someone's life or the uh, a young girl who became a, a case in point in the media, who thousands of people visited her hospital bed as she was, you know, waiting for the clock to tick down on whether she would get access to to a, a kidney. And so I really loved David how you how you balanced the human story and the technical and procedural details in in the book, and it had me thinking, you know, about what it would look like to live in a world where we prioritized moral thinking and moral emotions to the exclusion of systems. And we actually live in that world with GoFundMe medicine. I was looking at a academic paper by Mark Igra and others uh, that, you know, during COVID, more than 40% of COVID campaigns raised no money at all in the US. And that 1% uh, of campaigns received 25% of the resources. So you have cases where like humans engaging our moral reasoning, our moral emotions, hearing about stories, are allocating resources and gifts to the people that we individually and collectively think are most deserving and producing huge biases and inequalities and dis discrimination in how that resource allocation is, is happening. And so I think, David, your book has helped me think about, you know, how we hold those things in tension right, that our moral emotions don't necessarily steer us in ways that are fully beneficial for society, but similarly systematizing things to the exclusion of those moral considerations can be dangerous in the ways you've outlined as well, uh, Deb. Yeah, I have like a quick response to that. I don't know if Kenny, you want to? Okay. So uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I I actually also really resonated with that point as well. Um, I think something that struck me is that when you systemize, like when you turn something into an algorithmic system, when you sort of delegate that moral decision making, because it was introduced as a as a mechanism of reducing bias, like a, a, a method of neutralizing sort of individual the the way in which we have these individual judgments and how that can definitely steer us in the wrong way in many ways. And you hear similar arguments, for example, to the introduction of. Um, you know, hiring algorithms as a, as a mechanism to sort of neutralize the individual biases of a hiring manager. I think the challenge here is that, um, you know, some of these, some of the moral, dis one is the inflexibility of the algorithm, which we kind of did see in the book as well, of the idea that when you turn something into sort of a more um, like fossilized system, then, uh, you know, these exceptions that people 
us as humans, we can see like, oh, you know, this is a little girl. She deserves this kidney. The, 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 the exceptions that we recognize or that we might um, hold a lot of empathy for, the algorithm doesn't see as an exception or as, as, a, uh, as a reason to bend the rules. And so that inflexibility definitely comes up and shows up. Uh, and you can see that multiple times. But I also think there's this idea of the reality of when we design an algorithm um, with, you know, the perspective of one particular group and that getting scaled to the entire system, um, you know, at the national level. Uh, David, you had kind of alluded to some of the geographical disparities, but I even thought, you know, some of the racial disparities and age disparities reflected the reality of the fact that this is now a set of heuristics that is being massively deployed at a scale that um, impacts so many people, even though, you know, every single case is unique in its own way and localized in its own way. And so I think that that's just another side effect of turning something into an algorithm. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with what you mentioned, uh, Nathan, of just the reality of the fact that, you know, the reason these things are introduced in the first place is because we as humans have all these individual biases and heuristics that we use to make these decisions. And that needs to be sort of systematized in some concrete way. And so that's why they even get introduced in the first place. Um, so yeah, it's a weird tension that um, is really difficult to, to, to make a decision about or to work through in various scenarios. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about participation here and, um, and how it was done in, in this case and other ways that you all have seen it done um, for better or worse. So David, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little more about the way participation happened in this process, how were the decisions made as to who got to be in those meetings? Um, how successful do you think they were at, at achieving like an actually representative sample of the people who were involved in this process in different ways? Um, and then I think Nathan also had a question about sort of knowledge sharing within that committee. Did, did people serve only one role? Like if they were the patients, they just talked about what it was like to be a patient or were, were there efforts at citizen science or knowledge gathering and sharing that went in multiple directions? So there are a lot of different perspectives on the participation that takes place in transplant policymaking. In fact, so for other reasons, the uh, nonprofit that runs the transplant system, United Network for Organ Sharing, um, has had some, has been on the Hill recently uh, in some oversight hearings because uh, there have been some, there's been some downtime of the system and some other technological things and people are uh, debating changing it. And that that has meant that uh, some of the dirty laundry of their executives emailing each other has become public, including one from their current CEO that has, where he analogizes the public participation to uh, putting uh, your toddler's crayon drawing on the wall, that it's it's a performative exercise that has no real impact on uh, the actual outcome, which uh, I think I would be more troubled by if, and I am, of course, deeply troubled, but I'd be even more troubled and would see it as potentially a description of what actually happens, except that in the case I studied, uh, the experts wanted one thing and got something profoundly different. And many of them are still, I'm trying to pick a gentler word here, uh, angry that uh, the, the, the system didn't end up maximizing total benefits. So, I mean, I think if you're looking for an acid test of whether a participatory process worked or not, you can say, well, before the participants, which is a sort of othering term for the outsiders, I think, you know, became involved, what was the plan and what ended up happening and did it, did it make a difference? And, and here it did. But 
the outreach was not systematic. There was not systematic citizen science or anything like that. Even the question of who showed up, although these meetings were open to the public, there was a prominent role of uh, accident and social network and who ended up in the room, as well as, of course, a, a moderating factor of who's in a position to fly across you know, the country to some hotel room and, and sort of say their piece. And um, so Clive Groff, for instance, was active in a patient advocacy group for people with polycystic kidney disease. That's how he found out about the meeting. Another activist that I talked to, um, it turns out one of the policymaking physicians happens to be his nephrologist, right? So his thing was, my doctor's on the policy committee and mentioned it to me and I got involved as a patient. So it's it's very haphazard and I, I wouldn't put the outreach as a model necessarily. Nathan or Deb, do you have any reactions? Yeah, I have a minor reaction, which is um, I think um, the notion of participation and the quality of participation is like a huge topic. We could go on for a while about just how difficult it is to get you know, representative participation to avoid things like tokenization. Um, I think something else that was touched on in the book in this particular case as well is just how in the desire for bringing in as many diverse perspectives as possible, you can also really, you know, the the, complica- the complication of the problem <laughs> intensifies. And so that could slow down processes in a way that at times can be necessary, but at times can also cause very serious delays in terms of getting to particular outcomes. And I thought that was just like an important kind of very grounded reflection on just the process of actually including as many voices as possible. Um, I think something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, um, there's an article that um, uh, Mona Sloan and Emmanuel Moss wrote called Participation is Not a Design Fix for Machine Learning, because it's not a conversation in machine learning circles of just trying to include as many perspectives as possible as you're designing these things. And I think that that is definitely moving us towards a, a better set of systems, a more inclusive design approach. Um, but they talk about how um, it's also very easy to fall into sort of the trap of tokenization of taking, you know, one patient to represent all patients. And so um, missing out on just the complexity of the problem and getting caught in the weeds of it. Um, I think there's an article that, um, you know, I mentioned a lot of this conversation being really parallel in the hiring space where people also introduced algorithms as an approach of sort of systematizing decision making in the hiring space, especially for jobs that have like very high turnover. So think of like if you're a firm that's hiring a lot of telemarketers, for example, um, you know, how do we automate that process so that there's less bias by the HR managers and things like that? And I found that in that literature, they've sort of shifted from designing, from thinking about participation at the design stage of things, which became a very complicated question, um, to enabling sort of third-party access for auditing and for sort of third-party questioning of of the use of these systems and the design of these systems. And I don't know if that's the right approach. I think I'm still reflecting on just the details of how all of this would play out. But I think there's other ways to include uh, outside perspectives beyond just factoring them into the actual development and creation of the algorithms, initial heuristics, but also having them be able to sort of have the information they need to push back on decisions that are made specifically about them by the algorithm, um, but also collectively, if there's some particular attribute about the algorithm or characteristic that factored into their decision that they disagree with or that as a collective, you know, those that are impacted are beginning to disagree with, allowing them to 
push back and to vocalize that disagreement in a way that becomes consequential and becomes impactful. So in this case, you know, uh, you mentioned sort of Clive feeling very strongly about the race attribute factoring into the decision-making for the kidney transplant. I think something like that is something that we would need to see in other spaces, just allowing for that visibility of what's actually going on with the algorithm. The fact that an algorithm made the decision in the first place, I think is like, you know, the floor level of visibility required. Um, and then also enabling that visibility to, to lead to, um, you know, those that are impacted to be able to make judgments about the quality of the decision making that's being made about them um, by these algorithms and be able to effectively push back or question those judgments in a really meaningful, consequential way. I think that that's a, a form of participation that's often overlooked in these conversations, um, but might be sort of a helpful counterweight or alternative to simply attempting to capture as many perspectives as possible to sort of get it perfect the first time. Um, so that's just like a, a, a thought that came to mind. David or Nathan, you want to respond? I think that was a great summary of that debate. Have you, Deb or, or David or Nathan, have any of you seen promising proposals to that end to sort of allowing communities to be engaged at other points in these processes and to push back on decisions that get made? Yeah, I, I think there are participatory things that originate. I mean, at some level, when we say participatory, there's maybe a tacit subtext that what we're talking about is people in power setting up a room and, you know, putting some chairs around the table. But of course, many of the advocacy traditions themselves are profoundly participatory, and they begin, as it were, from the ground rather than from the top. So I think of the disability rights community, you know, nothing about us without us. Um, so it may not have been the, you know, United States Congress's intention that disabled people be you know, very deeply involved in the creation of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990 and before. But they were uh, because it was their intention that they participate. And so I, I, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And I also think participation can take can take many forms. And maybe to pick up on a question that Nathan and I were were talking about over e email a little bit earlier, you know, you might say, look, I know what the right answer is. For example, someone in a progressive context might say, you know, the right answer is we should, you know, abolish uh, pretrial detention, for instance, something I've worked a lot on. And then they'll say, well, for policymaking, impacted communities should have a voice, you know, in this. And there's a tacit premise that if uh, impacted communities are given a voice, then the correct answer, which is to abolish or greatly reduce incarceration, uh, will be reached, um, which, you know, it's it's interesting to wonder, well, okay, if I've got a mind's eye view that these folks will participate and that answer will emerge as the right answer, um, which of those things is actually the thing I'm, I'm most committed to? Do I think a democratic process makes an answer right because it was people were listened to. That's, you know, really a, a proceduralist view. Or do I think, look, democracy is handy sometimes because it gets us to the right answers, but we know what the right answers are. And the important thing is getting there, you know, one way or the other. And I think the more there's a practical implementation of these kinds of ideas, the more often people are apt to be confronted by the imperfect match between the civics fable that they envisioned and the actual truth when people get in a room and the results, you know, are messy. For instance, some of the research that I cite in the book says that unlike um, unlike the medical system, 
uh, people in general, uh, on average, when surveyed, are eager to punish, uh, for example, former alcoholics in the allocation of livers, even if they're going to the, those people are going to have better outcomes. It turns out the person on the street wants to wants to deprioritize them. So I, I and I know this is something, and maybe we can kind of. I'd like to hear what sort of Nathan, you know, th- thinks about this. Is how the how those should balance, or kind of, or kind of how we should should think about that problem. A few thoughts. First, David, you have a really fascinating example in the book about post-design interventions from people affect directly affected by this algorithm to change it, uh, and this is the story of. Uh, Miriam Holman, uh, the young woman who was like on her potential deathbed, right? And um, there was this question, is she going to get on, uh, you know, in this, in this case, right, she, she has a lung, di- lung disease, right? And she has this question, is she going to get a transplant? And, and in this particular case, there were people who cared about her, uh, who were willing to organize a lawsuit and other things to try to change allocation of, of lungs in her case, and maybe more broadly, I thought that was actually a really thought-provoking story for how one system, right, the, the, the things that had been done with the kidney allocation system matter not only for kidneys, but have come to mean something more for how you know, American health system thinks about the allocation of scarce transplant resources more generally. So that was actually, I found really helpful for thinking about those kind of post hoc processes. More generally, you know, it's hard. We, you know, we hope that, we hope, like, I at least am someone who is committed to to democracy for all sorts of reasons we talk about later. And my hope is that on average, right, with the right kind of support like we can steer it in beneficial ways. And one of the things that you touch on, David, in the book is this idea of, of what ethicists called like principalization of ethics, right? That sometimes we need guides for having these conversations and thinking about the trade-offs, right? That yes, we want to have the right people in the room. We want to have the right expertise and knowledge. But then we also need the right framing in terms of discussion, right? At the beginning of your talk, you showed us this incredibly loaded image that that created a scale between utility and equity, right? And it was one of those things that says, well, we should talk about utility. This is a moral concept that we can think about. We can fill our own, we can ask what our position on utility is, we can think about what our what do we mean by equity, like how do we how do we articulate our views? And, and I wonder if like one of the important questions in this work is that just like quantification can hide a bunch of decisions, uh, also how we define the moral terms of the debate is also incredibly important. And, and when done well, they give us valuable guardrails and guidance for having a shared conversation about these issues like what do we mean by justice what do we mean by equity but also when done poorly they can silence certain voices and steer people towards a conversation that actually doesn't uh, serve the common good so that that's another thing i've been thinking about as as reading the book about just who defines 
not only what we mean by a life year, but who defines what we mean by, say, equity? Yeah, if I could respond directly on on that last point and also pick up something from the Q&A in the audience, I see that uh, someone has asked, what are the deepest insights that I've had on reducing the cost of deliberation or improving its quality? And I think one of the things that comes up is, you know, this framing, this, you know, okay, what are the terms of debate uh, and how are we going to analyze things? That's expensive work to do. All this data analysis and gathering and synthesis and lots of people who have a stake in the outcome don't have the resources in their back pocket to replicate that analysis themselves or to conduct separate analyses that are going to point toward other moral principles. And so, as a practical matter, I think even though whoever does that analysis, for example, there's a there's a access to transplant score that's an analytical tool that the United Network for Organ Sharing created in order to compare the relative effect of different factors that are supposed to not matter, like geography or gender or other things, um, race. That and and that's a one way of looking at these factors that shouldn't alter people's chances, but do, and to what extent they do, and comparing their magnitude, and so on. And that's a very loaded thing to do. But if nobody does it, then we're not really equipped to have a conversation. And so even though that's a powerful position, I I think my deepest insight about reducing the cost of deliberation is if you think about the quantum of how many deliberated decisions there are going to be, whether it's organs allocated or um, you know, jobs decided or whatever it is, that if you're able to amortize your governance effort across a larger number of decisions, uh, then you, you have more resources to do the governing with. And that can be a powerful advantage. And so I think even though the analyst has power to shape the discussion, I actually think this story left me feeling uh like centralized analysis where someone does the plain language. Okay, what does this mean? What would it do? Somebody does that and publishes that and we all pay for that effort to be centralized. Of course, I think people should still have access to the underlying data so that when they want to, they can replicate or or can can say, oh, you've done this wrong. And really the key question is over here on the side and your C statistic is too low and so on. As people in fact did in this case, academics took the took the modelers to task on certain points. But I think centralizing that and providing that that those resources to do that analysis so that the barrier to understanding the system and understanding the moral stakes is low uh, is in general a net good. And now you could say, okay, who gets to do that modeling and who gets to decide what the modeler's incentives are. And you can kind of regress that back and say, well, you know, I think at some point somewhere, there's someone who has expertise that the rest of the community does not, who acts with a kind of fiduciary duty, ethically, if not legally, to be a fair-minded synthesizer of what's at stake. And although material incentives are vital, I also think there is an ethical piece and that the culture of moral humility of someone saying, I'm not going to try to prejudge this, you know, is is also one of the ingredients that we would want. I just wanted to also comment on something else, which is another comment that came up in the questions. Um, someone mentioned the idea of incorporating feedback into a, a wide range of access points, pretty much. So how, how do you account for feedback, a wide range of feedback? So I think like on one dimension, like I mentioned, 
uh, you know, there's definitely the question of participation before the model is designed, as the model is being designed, after the model is, you know, already deployed and allowing for recourse and pushback and auditing um, and the expertise required for that. But then there's also the question of, you know, maybe patients are not actually going to have the most informed perspective on which features to include in this, in this uh, you know, uh, organ uh, assignment algorithm. And so what their feedback is actually most useful for is just understanding the nature of the impacts and the nature of the harms and helping to taxonomize something like that. Um, the example that was given in the question um, uh, I see in Zoom here is, is around how um, patient feedback led to the removal of the race adjustment in um, an equation used for um, uh, the, the, CKD, the CKD equation. And I think that that's a great example of just how interacting with various stakeholders and going through the participatory process doesn't necessarily have to directly inform the design in the way that, you know, an engineer would give feedback on that model or the way that, um, you know, we would ideally want, you know, the patients to list out the ideal set of features for the model, but they might just be able to describe, you know, how it impacts their lives and what worries them or what concerns them. And um, that perspective could just be informative in and of itself of the ethical challenges and the harms involved. And I think that having more rich vocabulary around that dimension of things is also pretty valuable. And they're definitely experts in terms of describing how things impact them, <laughs> ideally. Yeah. So, so would you say, Deb and, and David, that maybe the hidden expertise in the success of this independent story is not in the like statistics or in the like surgery researchers or necessarily even the lawyers, but the like facilitators and organizers who mm. did the work of bringing people together, helping people understand each other and making this process go. Is that like one of the pieces, maybe hidden and under acknowledged pieces of expertise needed for this kind of work? Yeah, and identifying the right questions to ask which stakeholders, I think, is another key piece of that. Yeah, I'm curious what David thinks of that. Yes, I, I strongly agree. There's a lot of that work that happened. It was largely invisible, which meant the historical record that I was reviewing, which was in other respects extensive, was pretty thin on that. And um, it's definitely something that in a platonic ideal where I knew that it was going to be this book, when I started reading the stuff about transplant, I would have gone back and pushed harder on that. Uh, but I think the fact that it's thinly documented speaks to exactly both Nathan and Deb's point here that um, that it's not valued in the same way. And even the word expertise maybe is slanted away from some of the things that we need in order for meaningful participation to happen. Okay, I'm going to try to get one last question in under the wire because we are incredibly almost out of time. Um, and that's it's on David's point number six in his presentation, which is knowledge and participation don't always mean power. So we've mentioned this a couple of times in this discussion, but um, there's this massive geographic disparity in allocation of transplant organs of kidneys here. And the committee essentially decides not to touch it. I, my, my sense is because there's a there's an understanding that it can't be changed, that it's just the system is the way it is and they can't do anything about it. And then towards the end of the book, we get introduced to Miriam Holman, who is a woman who is in desperate need of a transplant and who files suit, um, uh, arguing that this geographic disparity um, 
should not be allowed. And suddenly this system that people thought could not be changed and there was no point in trying to fix within days of this lawsuit being filed, there are federal government levers being thrown all over the place, trying to, to change rules and letters being sent. And I was quite unsettled by, by that scenario. I mean, it's not, the story is, is a horrible one. And all of these, all of these decisions are, are horrible, but just the fact that you have this long participatory process and then you file suit, you, you pick a different tool to use and suddenly you get movement immediately. And as David points out in the book, that can happen in lots of different ways after these participatory processes and some, in some cases, undoing progress that has been done by those sort of participatory committees. So I'm just wondering, David, maybe to close us out, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and the committee? I mean, what was the reaction among the people who had in, been involved in this process um, to that litigation and to the changes that resulted? Because this was about lungs and kind of came in from left field after the this big long participatory debate i actually didn't it was late in the game for me research wise that someone even mentioned this and then i was like hey wait a minute you know this is a very different story than the tidy participatory victory that i thought i had uh and i think that a lot of people in the world who were the clinical kind of policy making world you know were were put off by this i think in this case Personally, substantively, I think it was correct and that the geographic zones were politically and morally dysfunctional, and I'm glad that the that they're going away. But um, um, but I think that in general, the model of have a family friend who works for the foremost litigation boutique, you know, this was like, oh, someone from Boy Schiller is taking this on pro bono and they're going to go to a federal district judge and they're going to give a 300 page crash crash course in organ transplantation. And by the time you're done reading the 300 page book that, you know, that Boy Schiller has written for you, of course, you think you need to immediately do urgently what they say you should, uh, you know, I mean, not to, but right, because also it was ex parte, because it was so fast, they, they came in and asked for a, 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 a TRO originally. And then anyway, yeah, the procedurally, these aren't the procedures that you would think would categorically tend to give you the wisest outcomes or the most careful outcomes. But I think that's one of the, you know, we all negotiate in the shadow of the political realities. And uh, it, it, it's one of the things that's curious to me is that the recourse to courts doesn't happen more pervasively even than it, than it, than it does. Uh, and that's just, that's kind of, you know, our, the popularity of, of litigation and of hard power kind of, you know, hardball, as it were. Um, and what controls that is something I've often wondered about, but don't have a lot of wisdom uh, on, you know, to what extent are people willing and when to to really play hardball? Yeah, maybe that's another book. <laughs> um <laughs> All right. We we are out of time, unfortunately, but Deb and Nathan and David, thank you for a really wonderful discussion. David, thank you for writing this excellent book. Um, and on behalf of everyone at the Knight Institute, thank you to the audience for joining us for this. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to Katie Glenn Bass. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. 
glossy press.